Welcome to New Books and Biography. I'm Oline Eaton. After the Great Depression, Americans were ready for a new form of entertainment and a new type of entertainer. Inner Gypsy Rose Lee, a strutting body erudite stripper who possessed a preternatural gift for delivering exactly what the country needed. Today we're going to be talking with Karen Abbott about her book, American Rose, The Life and Times of Gypsy Rose Lee. Hi, Karen. Thank you so much for joining us on New Books and Biography. I wonder if you could just start by telling us a little bit about your earlier work, uh, just by way of an introduction. Sure. Uh, my first book was called Sin in the Second City. Um, it tells the true story of two sisters, Minna and Anita Everlay, who um, operated the most famous brothel in American history. Um, this was in Chicago in, in 1900. Um, and uh, my second book is American Rose, which um, I like to call it it's a microcosm of 20th century as told through um, this one very dramatic and incredible life, uh, the life of Gypsy Rose Lee. Um, one of my friends called it um, Horatio Alger meets Tim Burton, which I thought was kind of an apt description of it. Um, it's this really bizarre, twisted fairy tale. So you're a self-described, quote, connoisseur of wickedness, which is a fabulous title, by the way. But of all <laughs> the wicked women out there, what in particular drew you, drew you to the story of Gypsy Rose Lee? Well, it was... Um, Actually, my grandmother, I blame my grandmother for all of my bodier uh, stories that, that I find. Uh, my grandmother um, is 93. She was only, excuse me, would have been a few years younger than Gypsy if Gypsy were still alive. Um, and my grandmother said that a cousin uh, went to see Gypsy Rosalie perform in 1935. Um, and the cousin said that Gypsy took a full 15 minutes to peel off her gloves, um, and that she was so damn good at it, he gladly would have given her 15 more. Um, so this story, I love this story, um, and, and it really got me thinking, you know, who was Gypsy Rose Lee? Uh, who could possibly take the act of peeling off a glove and make it so riveting that somebody might be compelled to watch this for a full half hour? Um, and so I began looking into her, um, and one of the first things I did, I, I found a couple of articles from Life magazine, which wrote a lot about Gypsy um, during that time period, and I found out later that one of the reasons was because she was having an affair with a photographer <laughs> of Life magazine, which I'm sure didn't hurt uh, her publicity efforts there. Um, but one of the first articles I found, uh, Life in Life, said that she was the most private public woman of her time. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting. Uh, what, a, what a paradox. Here's this woman who literally exposes herself for a living, and yet she is also known to be very private. But what an interesting uh, contradiction that is. Mm-hmm. Um, in the second article, I found sort of supported that theory. Um, it said that Gypsy was the only woman in the world with a public body and a private mind, both equally exciting. Um, and then the third thing I found really clinched it for me, um, that I, I had to write a book about this woman. Um, it was a telegram from Eleanor Roosevelt to Gypsy Rose Lee that said, may your bare ass always be shining. <laughs> so I thought, you know, anyone who gets a telegram like that from the former first lady is, is uh, definitely worth looking into. Yeah. Uh, before we dig into the discussion of Gypsy's life, I really want to spend some time discussing the chronology of the book, uh, because I read a lot of biographies, and this was something that really stood out as exceptional, and I know it must have been incredibly difficult to do. Uh, most biography follows a linear chronology, but you didn't. So first of all, for those who haven't read it, can you explain what the structure is of the book, and then also why you decided to put the story together in this way? Sure. Um, the structure of the book, I, I knew it was going to be unconventional. I knew it wouldn't be everybody's cup of tea, and it was a little bit of a risk to do it. Um, but, but after thinking about it and, and sort of lolling over the story in several ways in my mind, I figured it was the only way really it, it could be done, and I'll get into that for a minute. But, but the structure, just to describe it briefly, um, there's sort of three different narrative streams that are woven together. 
Uh, one is Gypsy's childhood, um, her years in vaudeville with her sister and their mother, the infamous Madame Rose, and all various adventures and um, problems and, and uh, really crazy things that happened to them on the road to uh, Gypsy becoming a major star. Um, then one of the narratives is Gypsy as an adult um, and her sort of looking back on, on what happened and, uh, and um, you know, the continuation of her life up until her death in 1970. And the third narrative is um, focuses on the Minsky brothers, and, and it sort of um, brings in that microcosm of 20th century America I was talking about, and what was going on in the world at the time, and, and how Gypsy was affecting these events in the world, and how they were affecting her. Um, and so, and how these all interplayed together, uh, I thought was really uh, sort of uh, paramount to, to what, the, what I wanted the book to be. And Gypsy was not a linear person. You know, she did not live life in a linear fashion. She moved backward as often as she moved forward. She was constantly reinventing herself um, and sort of rewriting her own history. And I thought I would really do her a disservice if I wrote her story in a, in a linear, linear fashion. Um, so the idea came to, to write the story as if it were a striptease, um, one of her stripteases. Um, and I wanted to sort of expose a little bit over here and pull away and go over here and expose a little bit more and then go back and, and expose more where I was before and, until all is revealed at the end. Um, and so that's really what I was trying to do with the structure. It makes for an amazing book. No, well, thanks. <laughs> no, I, I, impossible I'm to put down, yeah. Okay, so let's talk about Gypsy. To start out, um, this I guess this kind of brings us back to the idea of the microcosm. Could you just give us a general overview of where popular entertainment was at this time when she started working as a child with, we got vaudeville and the follies and speakeasies and film was kind of on the cusp of beginning. Can you just discuss with that a bit? Sure. Um, vaudeville, uh, which was, of course, the, the first entertainment uh, medium that Gypsy was involved in, was, was actually one of my favorite things to research. Um, it seemed that, to me that vaudeville was sort of the reality TV of the 1920s. <laughs> Um, you know, all of these people were vying for fame, and, and they didn't really have to have any talent or be able to do anything well. They, they just had to sort of um, find something odd to do and become the only person who could do that. Uh, one of my favorite vaudeville entertainers um, was a guy by the name of the Amazing Regurgitator. Um, and for his grand finale, uh, he would have his assistant set up a small metal castle on stage, and he would guzzle down uh, a gallon of water followed by a pint of kerosene. And he would shoot the kerosene out in this great six-foot arc and ignite the tiny castle in flames. And, you know, the crowd would ooh and ah and wonder if the whole theater was going to burn down. And then, uh, you know, to the accompaniment of a drum roll, he would eject the water and then extinguish the fire. Um, I actually have video of him doing this on, on my website, but he also swallowed goldfish and uh, baby sharks and asked the audience which one he should bring up first. I mean, he, he had all sorts of uh, tricks in his, um, in his uh, routine there. Um, but, but Vaudeville was really fascinating. And uh, Baby June, um, who was Gypsy's sister uh, and who grew up to be the actress June Havoc, um, you know, she was a headliner in vaudeville and, and was one of the most well-paid and uh, famous entertainers of the time, uh, which was an experience that really informed Gypsy's childhood and, and who she would become as an adult. Mm-hmm. What was Gypsy's relationship with her mother, who was quite a character? Oh, God. You know, that, that was another uh, facet um, that was just endlessly interesting to me. Uh, Gypsy... Um, has voluminous archives, you know, in the, in the New York Public Library, which really helped me in the writing of this book. Um, you know, her memoir, uh, 
as I said before, Gypsy was relentlessly self-inventing, and a lot of that had to do with um, she was a revisionist historian, especially when it came to her own life and, and uh, facets of her life that she'd rather not talk about. But luckily, she kept everything also. She sort of documented her life meticulously, even the, the darker parts. Um, and all of this was found in, in this correspondence in, in the New York Public Library, um, just letters and letters between her and her mother that really revealed this strange, sordid, um, and this codependent and sad and funny and, and just tragic relationship they had. Um, I think there's a line in the book that, that sums up the relationship <clears throat> pretty well, and, and it says something like, Others was a swooning, funhouse version of love, a love both deprived and depraved. Um, a love that wouldn't exist if they couldn't if they couldn't glimpse its uh, distorted reflection in the mirror or something to that effect. I'm trying to paraphrase myself, but it, but it was it was um, you know love that wouldn't exist uh, unless they they paid attention to it. It was it was you know the mother wanted Gypsy at any cost. She wanted attention for Gypsy at any cost, um, and and uh, Gypsy did not know how to let this go. Um, and it, it was something that again followed her through the rest of her life. Mm-hmm. What was her relationship with June as well, who you mentioned? I know that her name was initially Ellen June, and then her sister was given her name, which obviously doesn't get them off to a good start. Yeah, that was that was an odd thing to discover. You know, I, I dug up Gypsy's birth certificate, and lo and behold, um, it wasn't Rose Louise, as Gypsy ended up being called, you know, later on or when she was a, a young girl. But when she was a baby, her name was Ellen June. Um, and, and when her little sister, June, was born, the mother transferred that name, Ellen June, to the baby and, um, changed her older daughter's name to Rose Louise, who would become Gypsy. So for me, that sort of cemented the idea that identity was a very important theme in this book. Mm-hmm. Um, to have something as integral to who you are as your name being taken away from you at such a young age, you know, what, what does that do? How does that manifest itself in your psyche? Um, and, and how does that affect Gypsy, who, in fact, you know, did reinvent herself over and over again? Um, and and uh, so that was something that was, was really, uh, I thought, important to, to who Gypsy was. Mm-hmm. So what was, how successful was their early vaudeville career, her and June? Uh, it, was, it was very successful. Uh, Gypsy, of course, was not the star of the show. June, uh, if, um, you know, was, was the prodigy. She was a dance prodigy, and she was able to uh, uh, wear toe shoes and, and do... Um, Oh, God, what do they dance on tear shoes by the time she was three? Um, and, you know, which, which ruined her. Uh, her mother actually took her to, to a dance instructor who warned her and said, do not put toe shoes on this child. You're going to ruin her feet. Um, but her mother, of course, saw dollar signs and, and did this anyway. Um, and at the height of her career, it's about in, in 1923, 1924, Baby June was earning, um, you know, $120,000 uh, contracts, um, which was just, you know, ridiculous sums of money at the time. And I'll never forget, you know, I asked June Havoc, I was the last person to interview her before she passed, and I asked June Havoc, you know, what happened to all of that money? Um, and she just said, that's a good question. Um, I, I don't know what mother did with all that money. Um, and there, she did say that their mother used to carry about $50,000 in cash in, in this bag that swung around her waist, um, just this, this bag that just this sagged with money. And she would give Gypsy and June just one dollar a day uh, to live on, and and um, and uh, they were sort of left to fend for themselves. So, how did Gypsy segue into burlesque? Uh, well, that's an interesting question. Um, in terms of of the trajectory of her career, it was uh, when vaudeville started dying, uh, and, and I that's attributed a lot to the talkies. Um, once the jazz singer came out in 1927, um, vaudeville, vaudeville was sort of a thing of the past. It was passe entertainment, and, and um, everybody was going to the movies. 
Um, and, and the other new form of entertainment was burlesque. And burlesque really exploded in popularity after the stock market crash. Um, and, and really, you know, these men who um, had nothing else to do, uh, you know, their employment rate was skyrocketing, and, and the men just wanted to feel good about themselves and forget their troubles for an hour, and they would start lining up at the burlesque houses uh, uh, early in the morning. Um, and it was, I think, a camaraderie that they would feel with the performers, you know, uh, performer and, and the spectator were both equally naked. Um, and, and there was a dark year that Gypsy really never liked to speak about, and it was um, the time between the death of Vaudeville and her burlesque career. And it's just something that's never mentioned in her memoir. It's not on Broadway. But it was something that her sister and her son both spoke about and, and said that um, Gypsy had this very trying year. Um, and her son even uh, alleged that she had to uh, resort to prosecution at this time, um, as I believe probably many young girls did, just to survive. Um, she was eating dog food. She was desperate. Um, and, and they were uh, really, they didn't know what else to do, and, and burlesque was her big break and her chance to reinvent herself. And it was a really crucial moment when Rose Louise Hovick um, looked in the mirror and said, I'm no longer and my name is now Gypsy Rose Lee. Um, it was a very clean break from her past, and, and the deliberate creation of Gypsy Rose Lee um, happened at that moment. That raises two questions. Um, first of all, where was Mama Rose during all of that? And then second, how did she get her stage name? Um, Mama Rose was right there. Um, you know, they had that codependent relationship from the very beginning, and I think it was actually solidified during this time. Um, you know, Mama Rose would always tell Gypsy, you can't trust anyone but your mother. And, and this was something that she had instilled in both girls, you know, even as she was turning the sisters against each other, which she did relentlessly. Um, you know, she said, you can't trust anyone but your mother. And who else did Gypsy have but her mother during this time? And, and uh, she's a young girl. You have to remember at this time she's only 17 years old. Um, of course, she, she still wants her mother with her. Um, and her mother, um, Gypsy always claimed that her mother is the one that pushed her into burlesque. Um, but June disputes that. June said that Gypsy is the one who seized the opportunity and really took advantage of that moment. Um, so... Uh, you know, it's sort of a Rashomon uh, um, story about about how Gypsy actually got into burlesque. But but um, June says one thing, and the mother says the other thing, and Gypsy says something else. Um, so you have to sort of uh, take all of them and, and just uh, take the story as as all three tell it, and figure out what what, what the truth lies somewhere in between there. Mm. And uh, her stage name, um, you know, she had all sorts of stories about that too. Uh, she said that. Um, when she was young, she read tea leaves, and people called her a gypsy. Uh, she said that people called her a gypsy because she had dark hair and dark coloring. She said Billy Minsky, who was the big burlesque impresario who discovered her, um, she said he gave her the name. Uh, and, you know, one of her gangster boyfriends gave her the name. Um, so she had all sorts of stories for that, too. And, and uh, of course, when Arthur Lawrence, um, who was uh, getting ready to produce Gypsy on Broadway, asked her the same question, she said, oh, honey, I told so many stories about that. Why don't you just make up your own? <laughs> Which pretty much says all uh, all you need to know. She didn't care what the show was called as long as it was called Gypsy. <laughs> or what the show was in the show as long as it was called Gypsy. Uh, you mentioned Billy Minsky, who was hugely important to her career. Um, this also, again, brings up another family dynamic and, as you mentioned, makes the third strain of the narrative. Uh, can you discuss the Minsky family and their various businesses and their role in Gypsy's career? Yeah, the, I thought the Minsky brothers were, were fascinating characters. Mm-hmm. Um, they were sort of, uh, you know, the, these uh, uh, Jewish immigrants in the Lower East Side, which at the time was a very um, uh, Jewish neighborhood um, with poor immigrants. It was the most crowded neighborhood in the world. 
Um, and, you know, people living in these miserable tenements, just sort of uh, surviving from day to day and, and gangs and pickpockets and roaming thieves. Um, and, of course, uh, you know, out of this was born this great entertainment. Um, and the Minskys were, were the front runners of this. And they, they, you know, their father was this very religious man who used to show um, religious films up on the rooftop of his theater. And his sons had a different idea. You know, they said, well, people really want to escape. They, they want sex. Um, and they started a burlesque, uh, burlesque. And they were really brilliant about how they um, came up with their, their shows. Um, they would go, Billy Minsky in particular, who was sort of the, the creative force behind the Minsky Brother operation, would go up to the legitimate theaters on Broadway, and he would steal their storylines. He would steal their jokes, um, and and they would um, go back and, and put on their own twists on things. Um, instead of Anthony and Cleopatra, they do Anatomy and Cleopatra, um, and you know burlesque. Of course, the definition of, of burlesque is, is to poke uh, fun at, at proper entertainment, to to uh, you know uh, satirize something that takes itself too seriously. Um, and they were really uh, geniuses at that, and, and um, also injected an element of sex and, and, and burlesque that, um, uh, and sort of elevated it to a new level in that regard. And, and uh, people people loved it. Mm-hmm. And this was all unfolding. Um, the Vice Squad was quite an important force at the time, right? And they raided several times. I thought that was really interesting how they had the light coding system to alert the um, the stage people and who was in the audience. And if the Vice Squad was there, then they would change their their routines. Yeah, they had yeah. they hold a whole system for that. Um, of course, of course, uh, they they called it the blue show. You know, um, if 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 they put on the blue light, that meant they had to clean up the act. Um, and the Minsky's were were ingenious with that too. And and they had a good argument that they they didn't understand why uh, all of the legitimate quote unquote Broadway producers uh, like the Ziegfeld Follies could show these naked women with impunity. Um, the cops were never raiding Florence Ziegfeld, but yet uh, if you were showing nudity and burlesque below 14th Street, you know that was suddenly cause for alarm. Um, and so they they had this sort of um, they made a big political uh, stink about it. And and um, and of course every time a raid happened, the Minskys were thrilled because then more people would just come to the theaters. Mm-hmm. And of course the Minskys actually became um, a, a sort of um, a hotspot for for the high society of Manhattan, and and uh, you know famous writers and actors and and politicians would all show up down the Minsky's, and and it became really a um, a place to to be see and be seen. How did Billy Minsky meet Gypsy? Oh, he would go just as he would you know mm-hmm. steal jokes and and lines from everybody. He would also steal girls, um, and he would scour theaters in the tri-state area. Uh, looking for the next big thing. Um, and then one night he went to a theater in New Jersey, and he saw Gypsy perform. Um, and he realized he had never seen anything like her before, and he would never see anything like her again. Uh, I, and I think he actually said that at, at some point. Um, you know, whereas other burlesque performers would sort of take it all off, and they were very overt with her sexuality, and uh, she'd be right up into the audience. Uh, Gypsy was teasing, and, and she... Um, would would inject humor into her routine, and uh, you know it was she understood innately that we always want most what we can't have, um, and she knew how to to exploit that very human desire. And, and Billy Minsky uh, immediately knew that she was going to be an enormous star, and, and brought her up to New York. Uh, that leads right to my next question. Uh, you mentioned that you describe her at one point as a Dorothy Parker in a g-string, and describe her routine as a burlesque of burlesque. So you can can you tell us kind of give us an idea of what her routine was like. Sure. Gypsy, well, first, she was a comedian, and she considered herself a comedian. She had this contagious delight in the comedy of sex. 
I think that one of the most novel things about her was uh, she made sex funny. Um, and while burlesque comics did that, they, they did it with a leering way. And Gypsy did it with a very self-knowing, a self-mocking way. Women never made sex funny. She was the first person to ever do that. Um, and she was this brilliant self-satirist. So she knew she was a sex symbol on the surface, and yet she was mocking herself for being a sex symbol and, and, um, and making the, the mockery was even sexy. Um, and so she would, uh, you know, take 15 minutes to peel off her glove, and um, she would undo... She First of all, she never used zippers. She thought zippers were vulgar. And so she devised all these little ways to make her strip teasing more interesting and more intimate with the audience and with all that audience interaction. And so she would take off a straight pin one at a time and um, use it and pluck it into the tube, and it would go pling, pling, pling. Um, and as she told anyone, if they recovered one of the pins, they could get free admission next time. Um, and she would, you know, take off one of the bows of her pasties or expose herself, and one of the bows on her her pasties would be crooked, and she'd look down and say, oh, dear, and fix the bow, and everybody would laugh. Um, and she would take the bow off and then wrap it around the ball man's head and, and sort of get the, get the crowd involved and, and, um, and, and bring them into her, make them part of the joke um, and let them in on the joke. Um, she was never mocking the crowd. She was always with them, and, and they were with her. And um, it was something that was very, very unique at the time. Uh, in her efforts to get her daughters on the stage, Mama Rose actually did commit murder maybe more than once. Yes, she did. Uh, she, Mama Rose was a, a serial murderer. Uh, there's actually uh, a scene in Gypsy's uh, uh, memoir that talks about Mama Rose killing a cow. Um, and I, I learned, surprisingly, that uh, it was actually not a cow she killed. Um, but that was just one of the, one of the uh, instances on the road. Um, the most sensational one, of course, was uh, later on when Gypsy was very uh, firmly in place as Gypsy Rosalie, the, the star, and she was nationally known as, as a major entertainer. Um, and uh, there was an incident um, in Gypsy's upstate house in New York uh, that, that caused um, quite a problem, to put it mildly, and um, deepened the rift between mother and daughter that would, that would um, only you know, have repercussions until Gypsy died. Mm-hmm. So what we have, have a, a lot of women here, obviously. Um, what were Gypsy's relationships with men like? Um, well, Gypsy, that's a that's a really interesting question. You know, Gypsy grew up without a father figure. Um, one of the, the most horrifying things I uh, found out in the book was um, the way that Gypsy's father actually departed the scene um, and divorced their mother. Um, he this is one of the stories one of his rebels. Uh, he bought his children a pet kitten. Um, and one day came home and found the kitten. Um, this, he and his wife had a very acrimonious relationship. He bought, and after he bought his daughters this pet kitten, he came home one day to find that the kitten, uh, was no more, um, and was, uh, sort of disposed of in a way that sent a very clear message to, to him. Um, and he took off without further ado. Uh, and so the girls did not have a father figure, um, growing up, not a steady one anyway, um, until, uh, their mother uh, took up with a, with a man named Murray Gordon, um, who would who would uh, who would um, be June's manager on the road during the vaudeville career. And she had a very strange relationship with Murray Gordon. She she didn't quite trust him um, because his mother had ingrained in them from a very young age. You do not trust men. Um, she always told them men just want to enter your room. Um, so she you know she she had all these strange euphemisms for sex, and, and that was one of them. And so she she did not uh, instill a healthy uh, sort of um, 
uh, a way to relate uh, to men within her daughters, and, and that was something that Gypsy also had to uh, grapple with throughout her life. She, she, um, men and people in general, um, she, she looked at them just as, as you know, how what she could get from them. Um, Gypsy, if anything, she knew how to uh, look at person and excavate exactly what she needed from them at, at the given moment. Mm-hmm. So was that the case with Michael Todd? Oh, Michael Todd might have been the one exception. Um, I think in Michael Todd, who, you know, of course went on to marry Elizabeth Taylor, right. that Michael Todd, um, was, you know, just he met her match there. Uh, Gene Havoc always used to say it was money at first sight with uh, <laughs> and Michael Todd. And um, he hired her to uh, star in one of his productions at the New York World's Fair, um, which was a very pivotal moment in Gypsy's career. It was, uh, you know, sort of a make-or-break moment for her. She had all these uh, triumphs and also failures in the past, and, and the, the future was, uh, she was trying to determine what, what was next. And, and Michael Todd sort of represented that next facet of her life. And, and yes, yeah, she was crazy about him. And um, I, I think that the games they played with one another were, were pretty fascinating. Yeah, especially there's the picture in one of the, the opening of the chapter where she's looking at him and he's looking at the camera and you point out in the text that he all of the pictures of them are like that. Uh, yeah, yeah. He um, it's, uh, she, he knew exactly. Um, I, I, she met his, his match not only in background and sort of similar outlook on the world, but in the way they were able to uh, manipulate people and, and sort of um, really just find exactly what they needed from somebody. Mm-hmm. So what was the significance of the World's Fair? Well, the World's Fair is a 1939-1940 World's Fair, and it was um, uh, in New York and Flushing, Queens. Well, I'll talk, uh, I, I decided to start and end the book at, at the World's Fair for a very right. specific reason. Um, it's it's 1939-1940, which was exactly the midpoint of her life. Uh, she was 29 years old at the time. Um, and she, you know, would, would, uh, it was exactly, uh, the midpoint of her life. And, and, uh, so it was sort of this literally, um, typical moment for her. And she had just come from great failure in Los Angeles trying to be a, a Hollywood actress. She, she had, you know, by the time age 29, she had, um, been this star in vaudeville or, uh, star in vaudeville. She had the, the depths of, um, that really bleak year before she became a huge burlesque star again and then had, miserable uh, failure in Hollywood. So she'd had all these incredible ups and downs by the young age of 29. Um, and she, you know, really wasn't quite sure what was going to come next. And, of course, what came next was something that nobody would have expected from a burlesque performer, um, somebody who, you know, turned herself into uh, and actually a respected writer and somebody who was accepted member of New York's Literati and was hanging out with H.L. Mencken and George Davis and um, Carson McCullers. Um, and so, so her life took a very interesting turn at the World's Fair. What did she write? Well, she she was uh, quite a prolific writer, and she was very determined uh, to become a successful writer and to be taken seriously. Um, and shortly after the World's Fair, she moved into a writer's colony in Brooklyn that was um, uh, started by George Davis, who had been a fiction editor at Harper's Bazaar. And he invited her to, to come there and start working on her first novel, which she did. Um, and Gypsy lived there with uh, Carson McCullers. She actually became very, very close friends with Carson McCullers. It was even rumored that they had a fling. Um, and Gypsy worked on her first book there. It was called The G-String Murders. And, of course, it was a novel in which the uh, murder weapon was a G-string. Uh, and uh, she she was determined for this book to become a bestseller. And um, I really enjoyed reading the letters between Gypsy and her publicist, Simon & Schuster. And she'd say things like, 
But um, I'll do my striptease and Macy's if, if it will sell books. If you want something a bit classier, make it a winemaker window. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she, and she was. Uh, her book was a great success. Um, she went on to try to write um, another novel. It was called Mother Finds a Body. Um, which was <laughs> must have been very close thing. to home. <laughs> exactly, it was a little bit autobiographical. So. I think that was one of the things that I really enjoyed was that when you used excerpts from her letters or her writing or anything, it was oh, it was so funny. And yeah. I guess like just that I didn't know much about her, but the public image of her is not like that, and it was just great to read. Yeah, yeah. She also went in and appeared in films, right, in the nineteen forties. She did. She did. Well, she started her film career in Hollywood, um, which was, uh, as I said, it did not go well. Um, and I think the New York Times had the most brutal, brutal, excuse me, brutal review. Um, and it said Hollywood gave Gypsy two things she didn't need, a new name and clothes. Um, because, when, of course, when she went out to Hollywood, um, they made her go back to using Rose Louise Hovick instead of, um, I'm sorry, Louise Hovick instead of Gypsy Rose Lee, um, because of the Catholic uh, Church and a bunch of reform groups were protesting that nobody should go see a movie um, with with a stripper um, as the star, and so there was a big outcry over that. Uh, and and all of these um, and 20th Century Fox was forced to um, strip her name and uh, use Louise Hope instead of Gypsy Rose Lee. So that was a big blow to her too. And and um, the fact that she had to take this name that she had very deliberately discarded and, and use it again. Right. She also hosted a TV show in the late '60s, right? Oh, she did. She, um, Gypsy, was not only she was a TV host and also um, a frequent guest on TV. Uh, one of my favorite clips from Gypsy, you know, she always had the the most, uh, you know, witty quip. Um, she went on jo- Johnny Carson one time, and uh, he announced her by saying. Gypsy Rosalie says she is going to take her clothes off. Then Gypsy comes out on stage and says, uh, why, Johnny, you know I never use the end of sentence with a proposition. <laughs> um, and uh, so she she sort of learned the art of um, of uh, television uh, hosting from a lot of friends who were in TV. And, and uh, she always said that, that doing a TV show was probably the most enjoyable time of her life, um, when she actually felt like herself, um, and she actually realized who she was, um, and, and shared very personal things. You know, she'd share the results of her latest facelift. Um, she would share what she felt like when, you know, when her son went off to the Army, and, and some, some really personal things. That brings us back to her relationships with men, um, because she did marry... It's pretty much accepted that she married William Alexander Kirkland to make Mike Todd jealous, right? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's is, um, and, and of course, Bill Kirkland was at, at the very least bisexual, mm-hmm. and, um, and, and, uh, so she was, it was sort of one of those Hollywood marriages, but she did marry him to make Michael Todd jealous. And it was actually one of my favorite scenes in the book was yeah. her waiting for, to see if Michael Todd would show up and stop, and stop that charade. Um, and, uh, it's, it's, uh, it was very telling and, and, uh, Bill Kirkland actually wrote a great letter to Gypsy that, um, I, I reprinted a book that, you know, had never been published before. Mm-hmm. And then she did have a son with Otto Preminger. What was their relationship? Oh, that was, that was classic Gypsy. I, I loved, um, the way she sort of, um, decided that Otto Preminger was going to be the father of her child. And she told June Havoc, she said, quote, I wanted the meanest, nastiest son of a bitch, and he was going to be the father of my child. <laughs> and that was Otto Preminger. Um, she said, and yeah, my child will rule the world. So that, that was what was in her mind when she decided to, uh, pick, pick the father of her child. Um, and she was very, as I said, Gypsy was nothing if not economical. 
So she plays Vital Preminger and, and very, you know, immediately gets pregnant. It was it was a very well executed plan. <laughs> so what do you think is Gypsy's legacy? Oh, that's a good question. I think that, you know, anyone who's in entertainment, um, who's in, in sort of burlesque today or a female performer who plays with sex and plays with comedy um, is taking cues from Gypsy and is borrowing from Gypsy's playbook. Um, I was really interested to learn that Lady Gaga is apparently obsessed with Gypsy. Really? Um, yeah. And and if you think about it, you know, Gypsy, one of, Gypsy's, one of Gypsy's great moves, uh, one of her signature moves, so she would always go to the opening of uh, Metropolitan um, Opera House. She would go to opening nights at the Met wearing a full-length cape made entirely of orchids. And, of course, Lady Gaga showed up somewhere wearing a full-length cape made of meat. Um, which, you know, it, it was a sort of, a, you know, Gypsy 2.0, just yeah. people updating Gypsy's playbook. Um, and I think that, you know, anyone, you know, long before Madonna, Gypsy learned how to, um, like I said before, sort of exploit the idea that, that we always want most of what we can't have, that, that people, that, that very human desire that um, we we want that which is most unattainable. Um, and anyone who, who uses that in their entertainment today, I think I think is sort of, um, got that from Gypsy. Mm-hmm. So the subtitle of the book is "A Nation Laid Bare." I'm just curious, why that? What 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 do you see that as representing? Um, I, I didn't have any control over the subtitle. I'll okay, <laughs> but <laughs> I was trying I, to read all like, these deep messages into it, and I wasn't sure. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think it was a play. It was it was sort of across the idea that that um, this isn't just a biography. This is a, a book about about the 20th century American right. and how this one very uh, prominent figure. Um, let's let's look at the, the interesting events of the 20th century America through this very uh, tumultuous and dramatic and life um, and sort of. Um, as Gypsy evolved and, and did lay herself bare as, as she sort of, um, you know, the, the creation of Gypsy Rose Lee solidified and became what it was going to become. You know, the nation was undergoing these major changes. And, mm-hmm. and the book sort of chronicles uh, all of all of the major themes that were going on um, simultaneously with Gypsy's rise. You know, when she's in Barville, um, we, you know, World War One was going on. Um, I talk about World War Two, where Gypsy actually went and entertained the troops. She, um, I talk about Vietnam. You know, one of her very last acts as a performer was to um, entertain the troops in Vietnam and receive a, an award for that. Uh, she was very involved with that. And, of course, in between, there's the stock market crash, the Roaring Twenties, the Great Depression, um, the Red Scare. Gypsy was uh, very politically active, which a lot of people don't know that either. She she um, was a, an activist um, and worked for um, um, Spanish loyalists and uh, was actually put on a, a red scare list in the 50s. Um, so all of that's in there. Um, and I, it just sort of um, was fascinating to me how, how she was really immersed herself and immersed herself in all these major events in, in the 20th century. Right. You spent quite a lot of time with June Havoc and um, Gypsy's son as well, right, interviewing them for the book? I did, I did. And I was, I was really fortunate. I don't think the book would have been, um, you know, as rich or as detailed as, as it as I tried to make it without, without their help and, and sort of, you know, just being able to tell stories that had never been told before and, and being able to present a more realistic and more, um, um, I think, inter, uh, sort of more realistic and, and also more chaotic and also a more honest portrait of, of what happened with our, um, you know, Broadway, the Broadway show. It has its sort of um, moments of pathos, but... Um, you know, I, I think mostly it's just a sunny, optimistic piece of uh, 
storytelling, and, and the, the reality is so much uh, richer and darker than that. What was the biggest surprise as you were writing? You know, I think the biggest surprise was how often my feelings about her changed, and I, I felt incredibly sorry for her at times. I mean, how could you not, growing up with a mother like that? Um, and then I felt I was um, thought she was a horrible person, you know, looking at the way she treated June Havoc at times. I thought she was terrifying. I thought she was brilliant. I thought she was hilarious. I thought she was um, incredibly uh, depraved. And I thought she was um, someone who was probably never going to be capable of loving anyone um, outside of her own creation. And that was sort of the final bottom line I had with her. But, but it, you know, my feelings about her still are... Um, uh, run the gamut and, and evolve. Every time I think about her, I think something something new. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today. Um, I know it's a horrible question to ask when you've just published your book, but what are you going to work on next? Well, I'm currently working on a story about uh, female civil war spies. Um, it's, uh, it's a true story of uh, four women who, who sort of risked everything for their cause. It's uh, two women who spied for the Union and two who spied for the Confederacy and telling this uh, story of the Civil War through their perspectives. Um, not entirely scrupulous women, but very, very interesting. So. Well, that's very exciting. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. I've been speaking with author Karen Abbott about her book, American Rose, The Life and Times of Gypsy Rose Lee, which is now out in paperback. I'm Elaine Eaton. This is New Books and Biography. Thanks for listening.